Section 2, consisting of Chapter 3 of Sixty Years in Southern California, 1853 to 1913, by Harris Newmark. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by P.J. Landau. Chapter 3, New York, Nicaragua, the Golden Gate, 1853. On September 20th, during some excitement due to the fear lest passengers from New Orleans afflicted with yellow fever were being smuggled into the city despite the vigilance of the health authorities, I left New York for Nicaragua, then popularly spoken of as the Isthmus, sailing on a steamer, Illinois, as one of some 11 or 1,200 travelers recently arrived from Europe who were hurrying to California on that ship and the Star of the West. The occasion afforded my numerous acquaintances a magnificent opportunity to give me all kinds of advice, in the sifting of which the bad was discarded, while some attention was paid to the good. One of the important matters mentioned was the danger from drinking such water as was generally found in the tropics, unless it were first mixed with brandy. And this led me, before departing, to buy a gallon demijohn, a bulging bottle destined to figure in a ludicrous episode on my trip from sea to sea. I can recall little of the voyage to the eastern coast of Nicaragua. We kept well out at sea until we reached the Bahama Islands, when we passed near Marijuana, felt our way through the windward passage, and steered east of the island of Jamaica. But I recollect that it became warmer and warmer as we proceeded farther south to about opposite Mosquito Gulf, where we shifted our position in relation to the sun, and that we consumed nine days in covering the 2,000 miles or more between New York and San Juan del Norte, or Greytown. From San Juan del Norte, in normal times, a hamlet of four or five hundred people clustered near one narrow, dirty street, we proceeded up the San Juan River, 900 passengers huddled together on three flat-bottom boats, until after three or four days our progress was interfered with at Castillo Rapids by a fall in the stream. There we had to disembark and climb the rough grade, while our baggage was carried up on a tramway, after which we continued our journey on larger boats, though still miserably packed together, until we had almost reached the mouth of Lake Nicaragua, when the water became so shallow that we had to trust ourselves to the uncertain bongos, or easily overturned native canoes, or get out again and walk. It would be impossible to describe the hardships experienced on these crowded little steamboats, which were by no means one quarter as large as the Hermosa, at present plying between Los Angeles Harbor and Catalina. The only drinking water that we could get came from the river, and it was then that my brandy served its purpose. With the addition of the liquor, I made the drink both palatable and safe. Men, women, and children, we were parched and packed like so many herring. And at night, there was not only practically no space between passengers sleeping on deck, but the extremities of one were sure to interfere with the body of another. The heat was indeed intense. The mosquitoes seemed omnivorous. To add to which, the native officers in charge of our expedition pestered us with their mercenary proceedings. For a small cup of black coffee, a charge of 50 cents was made, which leaves the impression that food was scarce, else no one would have consented to pay so much for so little. This part of the trip was replete with misery to many, 
but fortunately for me although the transportation company provided absolutely no conveniences the hardships could not interfere with my enjoyment of the delightful and even sublime scenery surrounding us on all sides in this tropical country as the river had no great width we were at close range to the changing panorama on both banks while the neighboring land was covered with gorgeous jungles and vegetation here i saw orange lemon and coconut trees monkeys of many kinds and sizes were to be seen and birds of variegated colors were plentiful almost innumerable varieties of parrots being visible all these things were novel to me and notwithstanding the great discomforts under which we traveled i repeat that i enjoyed myself a walk of a mile or two along the river bank affording beneficial exercise brought us to port san carlos from which point a larger boat crossed the lake to virgin bay where we took mules to convey us to san juan del sur this journey was as full of hardship as it was of congeniality and proved as interesting as it was amusing imagine if you please nine hundred men and women and children from northern climes long accustomed to the ways of civilization suddenly precipitated under an intensely hot tropical sun into a small central american landing consisting of a few huts and some cheap improvised tents used for saloons and restaurants every one in search of a mule or a horse the only modes of transportation the confusion necessarily following the preparation for this part of the trip can hardly be imagined the steamship company furnished the army of animals and the nervous tourists furnished the jumble each one of the nine hundred travelers feared that there would not be enough animals for all and the anxiety to secure a beast caused a stampede in the scramble i managed to get hold of a fine mule and presently we were all mounted and ready to start this conglomeration of humanity presented indeed a ludicrous sight and i really believe that i must have been the most grotesque figure of them all i have mentioned the demijohn of brandy which a friend advised me to buy but i have not mentioned another friend who told me that i should be in danger of sunstroke in this climate and who induced me to carry an umbrella to protect myself from the fierce rays of the enervating sun picture me then none too short and very lank astride a mule a big demijohn in one hand and a spreading green umbrella in the other riding through this southern village and practically incapable of contributing anything to the course of the mule had the animal been left to his own resources he might have followed the caravan but in my ignorance i attempted to indicate to him which direction he should take my method was evidently not in accordance with the tradition of guiding in just that part of the world and to make a long story short the mule with his threefold burden deftly walked into a restaurant in the most innocent manner and to the very great amusement of the diners but to the terrible embarrassment and consternation of the rider after some difficulty for the restaurant was hardly intended for such maneuvers as were required we were led out of the tent this experience showed me the necessity of abandoning either the umbrella or the brandy and learning that lemonade could be had at points along the route, I bade good-bye to the demijohn and its exhilarating contents. From this time on, although I still displayed inexpertness in control, his muleship and I gradually learned to understand each other, and matters progressed very well, 
notwithstanding the intense heat and the fatigue natural to riding so long in such an unaccustomed manner. The lemonade, though warm and therefore dear at ten cents a glass, helped to quench my thirst, and as the scenery was wonderful, I derived all the benefit and pleasure possible from the short journey. In all, we traversed about twelve miles on mule or horseback, and finally arrived at four o'clock in the afternoon of the day we had started at San Juan del Sur, thus putting behind us the most disagreeable part of this uncomfortable trip. Here it may be interesting to add that on our way across the isthmus, we met a crowd of disappointed travelers returning from the Golden Gate on their way toward New York. They were a discouraged lot, and loudly declared that California was nothing short of a fiasco. But, fortunately, there prevailed that weakness of human nature which impels every man to earn his own experience, else, following the advice of these discomfited people, some of us might have retraced our steps and thus completely altered our destinies. Not until the publication years later of the personal memoirs of General W.T. Sherman did I learn with peculiar interest that the then rising soldier returning to California with his young wife, infant child, and nurse had actually embarked from New York on the very same day that I had, arriving in San Francisco the same day that I arrived, and that therefore the Shermans, whose experience with the mules was none the less trying and ridiculous than my own, must have been members of the same party with me in crossing the mosquito-infested isthmus. There was no appreciable variation in temperature while I was in Nicaragua, and at San Juan del Sur, whose older portion, much like San Juan del Norte, was a village of the Spanish-American type, with one main street up and down which, killing time, I wandered. The heat was just as oppressive as it had been before. People often bunked in the open, a hotel keeper named Green renting hammocks at one dollar each when all his beds had been taken. One of these hammocks I engaged, but being unaccustomed to such an aerial lodging, I was most unceremoniously spilled out during a deep sleep in the night, falling only a few feet, but seeming to my stirred-up imagination to be sliding down through limitless space. Here I may mention that this Nicaragua route was the boom creation of a competitive service generally understood to have been initiated by those who intended, at the first opportunity, to sell out and that since everybody expected to pack and move on at short notice, San Juan del Sur, suddenly enlarged by the coming and going of adventurers, was for the moment, in part, a community of tents, presenting a most unstable appearance. A picturesque little creek flowed by the town and into the Pacific, and there a fellow traveler, L. Harris, and I decided to refresh ourselves. This was no sooner agreed upon than done, but a passer-by, having excitedly informed us that the creek was infested with alligators, we were not many seconds in following his advice to scramble out, thereby escaping perhaps a fate similar to that which overtook, only a few years later, a near relative of Mrs. Henry Hancock. At sundown, on the day after we arrived at San Juan del Sur, the Pacific Terminal, we were carried by natives through the surf to small boats, and so transferred to the steamer Cortez, and then we started amidst great rejoicing on the last lap of our journey. We steamed away in a northerly direction upon a calm sea and under the most favorable circumstances, albeit the intense heat was most unpleasant. In the course of about a week, 
the temperature fell, for we were steadily approaching a less tropical zone. Finally, on the 16th of October, 1853, we entered the Golden Gate. Notwithstanding the lapse of many years, this first visit to San Francisco has never been forgotten. The beauty of the harbor, the surrounding elevations, the magnificence of the day, and the joy of being at my journey's end left an impression of delight which is still fresh and agreeable in my memory. All San Francisco, so to speak, was drawn to the wharf, and enthusiasm ran wild. Jacob Rich, partner of my brother, was there to meet me, and without ceremony escorted me to his home, and under his hospitable roof I remained until the morning when I was to depart for the still sunnier south. San Francisco, in 1853, was much like a frontier town, devoid of either style or other evidences of permanent progress, yet it was wide awake and lively in the extreme. What little had been built, bad and good, after the first rush of gold seekers, had been destroyed in the five or six fires that swept the city just before I came, so that the best buildings I saw were of hasty and, for the most part, of frame construction. Tents also of all sizes, shapes, and colors abounded. I was amazed, I remember, at the lack of civilization, as I understood it, at the comparative absence of women, and at the spectacle of people riding around the streets on horseback like mad. All sorts of excitement seemed to fill the air. Everywhere there was a noticeable lack of repose, and nothing perhaps better fits the scene I would describe than some lines from a popular song of that time entitled San Francisco in 1853. City full of people, in a business flurry, everybody's motto, hurry, hurry, hurry. Every nook and corner full to overflowing, like a locomotive, everybody going. One thing in particular struck me, and that was the unsettled state of the surface on which the new town was being built. I recall, for example, the great quantity of sand that was continually being blown into the streets from sand dunes uninterruptedly forming in the endless vacant lots, and how people, after hard wind at night, would find small sand heaps in front of their stores and residences, so that in the absence of any municipal effort to keep the thoroughfares in order, the owners were repeatedly engaged in sweeping away the accumulation of sand, lest they might be overwhelmed. The streets were upgraded, although some were covered with planks for pavement, and presented altogether such an aspect of uncertainty that one might well believe General Sherman's testimony that in winter time he had seen mules fall, unable to rise, and had even witnessed one drown in a pool of mud. Sidewalks, properly speaking, there were none. Planks and boxes, some filled with produce not yet unpacked, were strung along in irregular lines, requiring the poise of an acrobat to walk upon, especially at night. As I waded through the sand heaps, or fell over the obstructions designed as pavements, my thoughts reverted very naturally to my brother, who had preceded me to San Francisco two years before. But it was not until some years later that I learned that my distinguished fellow countryman, Heinrich Schliemann, destined to wander farther to Greece and Asia Minor, and there to search for ancient Troy, had not only knocked about the sandlots in the same manner in which I was doing, but stirred by the discovery of gold and the admission of California to the Union, had even taken on American citizenship. Schliemann visited California in 1850 and became naturalized, 
nor did he ever, I believe, repudiate the act which makes the greatest explorer of ancient Greece a burgher of the United States. During my short stay in San Francisco, before leaving for Los Angeles, I made the usual rounds under the guidance of Jacob Rich. Having just arrived from the tropics, I was not provided with an overcoat, and since the air was chilly at night, my host, who wore a talma, or large cape, lent me a shawl, shawls then being more used than they are now. Rich took me to a concert that was held in a one-story wooden shack, whereat I was much amazed and afterward we visited a number of places of louder revelry. Just as I found it to be a few days later in Los Angeles, so San Francisco was filled with saloons and gambling houses, and these institutions were in such contrast to the features of European life to which I had been accustomed that they made a strong impression upon me. There were no restrictions of any sort, not even including a legal limit to their number, and people engaged in these enterprises because, in all probability, they were the most profitable. Such resorts attracted criminals or developed in certain persons latent propensities to wrongdoing, and perhaps it is no wonder that Walker, but the previous summer, should have selected San Francisco as headquarters for his filibustering expedition to Lower California. By far the most talked-of man of that day was Harry Meigs, popularly known as Honest Harry, who was engaged in various enterprises, and was a good patron of civic and church endeavor. He was evidently the advance guard of the Boomer organization, and built the Long Wharf at North Beach, on a spot now at Commercial and Montgomery Streets, where later the Australian convict, trying to steal a safe, was captured by the First Vigilance Committee. And so much was Meigs the envy of the less pyrotechnical, though more substantial people, that I repeatedly had my attention called, during my brief stay in San Francisco, to what was looked upon as his prodigious prosperity. But Meigs, useful as he was to the society of his day, finally ended his career by forging a lot of city scrip, a great deal of which he sold to W.T. Sherman and his banking associates and by absconding to Peru, where he became prominent as a banker and a developer of mines. Situated at the plaza, where but three years before, on the admission of California as a state, the meeting of gold-seeking pioneers and lassoing natives had been symbolized with streaming banners, and the thirty-one stars were nailed to a rude pole, was the El Dorado, the most luxurious gambling place and saloon in the West despite the existence nearby of the Bella Union, the Parker House, and the Empire. Music, particularly native Spanish or Mexican airs, played its part there, as well as other attractions, and much of the life of the throbbing town centered on that locality. It is my impression that the waterfront was then Sansom Street, and if this be correct, it will afford some idea of the large territory in San Francisco that is made ground. As there was then no stage line between San Francisco and the South, I was compelled to continue my journey by sea, and on the morning of October 18th, I boarded the steamer Goliath, whose captain was Salisbury Haley, formerly a surveyor from Santa Barbara, bound for Los Angeles, and advertised to stop at Monterey, San Luis Obispo, Santa Barbara, and one or two other landings formerly of importance, but now more or less forgotten. There were no wharves at any of those places, 
Passengers and freight were taken ashore in small boats, and when they approached shallow water, everything was carried to dry land by the sailors. This performance gave rise at times to most annoying situations. Boats would capsize and empty their passengers into the water, creating a merriment enjoyed more by those who were secure than by the victims themselves. On October 21st, we arrived a mile or so off San Pedro, and were disembarked in the manner above described, having luckily suffered no such mishap as that which befell passengers on the steamship Winfield Scott, who, journeying from Panama but a month or so later at midnight, struck one of the Anacapa Islands, now belonging to Ventura County, running dead onto the rocks. The vessel in time was smashed to pieces, and the passengers, several hundred in number, were forced to camp on the island for a week or more. Almost from the time of the first visit of a steamer to San Pedro, the Gold Hunter, a side-wheeler which made the voyage from San Francisco to Mazatlan in 1849, and certainly from the day in January of that same year, when Temple and Alexander put on their four-wheeled vehicle, costing $1,000 and the second in the country, there was competition in transporting passengers to Los Angeles. Phineas Banning, Augustus W. Timms, J.J. Tomlinson, John Goller, David W. Alexander, Jose Rubio, and B.A. Townsend were among the most enterprising commission men, and their keen rivalry brought about two landings, one controlled by Banning, who had come to Los Angeles in 1851, and the other by Timms, after whom one of the terminals was named. Before I left San Francisco, Rich provided me with a letter of introduction to Banning, who was then known, if I remember aright, as captain, although later he was called successively major and general, at the same time stating that this gentleman was a forwarding merchant. Now in European cities, where I had heretofore lived, commission and forwarding merchants were a dignified, and to my way of thinking, an aristocratic class, which centuries of business experience had brought to a genteel perfection, and they would have found themselves entirely out of their element, had their operations demanded their sudden translation in the fifties to the west coast of America. At any rate, upon arriving at San Pedro, I had expected to find a man dressed either in a uniform or a Prince Albert, with a high hat and other appropriate appurtenances, and it is impossible to describe my astonishment when Banning was pointed out to me, for I knew absolutely nothing of the rough methods in vogue on the Pacific coast. There stood before me a very large, powerful man, coatless and vestless, without necktie or collar, and wearing pantaloons at least six inches too short, a pair of brogans, and socks with large holes, while bright-colored suspenders added to the picturesque effect of his costume. It is not my desire to ridicule a gentleman who, during his lifetime, was to be a good, constant friend of mine, but rather to give my readers some idea of life in the West, as well as to present my first impressions of Southern California. The fact of the matter is that Banning, in his own way, was even then such a man of affairs that he had bought but a few months before some fifteen wagons and nearly five times as many mules, and had paid almost thirty thousand dollars for them. I at once delivered the letter in which Rich had stated that I had but a smattering of English, and that it would be a favor to him if Banning would help me safely on my way to Los Angeles. And Banning, having digested the contents of the communication, looked me over from head to foot, 
shook hands, and in a stentorian voice loud enough, I thought, to be heard beyond the hills, good-naturedly called out, Be Gates, after which, leading the way and shaking hands again, he provided me with a good place on the stage. Not a minute was lost between the arrival of passengers and the departure of coaches for Los Angeles in the early fifties. The competition referred to developed a racing tendency that was the talk of the Pueblo. The company that made the trip in the shortest time usually obtained, through lively betting, the best of advertising and the largest patronage, so that from the moment of leaving San Pedro until the final arrival in Los Angeles, two and a half hours later, we tore along at breakneck speed over roads slowly traveled but a few years before by Stockton's Cannon. These roads, never having been cared for and still less inspected, were abominably bad, and I have often wondered that during such contests there were not more accidents. The stages were of the common western variety, and four or six broncos were always a feature of the equipment. No particular attention had been given to the harness, and everything was more or less primitive. The stage was provided with four rows of seats, and each row, as a rule, was occupied by four passengers. The front row, including the oft-bibulous driver, and the fare was five dollars. Soon after leaving San Pedro, we passed thousands of ground squirrels, and never having seen anything of the like before, I took them for ordinary rats. This was not an attractive discovery, and when later we drove by a number of ranch houses, and I saw beef cut into strings and hung over fences to dry, it looked as though I had landed on another planet. I soon learned that dried beef, or as the natives here called it, carne seca, more generally known perhaps at least among frontiersmen as jerked beef or jerky, was an important article of food in Southern California. But from the reminiscences of various pioneers I have known, it evidently astonished others as much as it did me. Having reached the halfway house, we changed horses, and then we continued and approached Los Angeles by San Pedro Street, which was a narrow lane, possibly not more than ten feet wide, with growing vineyards bordered by willow trees on each side of the road. It was on a Sunday, and in the midst of the grape season, that I first beheld the City of the Angels, and to these facts in particular I owe another odd and unfavorable first impression of the neighborhood. Much of the work connected with the grape industry was done by Indians and native Mexicans, or Californians, as they were called, and every Saturday evening they received their pay. During Saturday night and all day Sunday, they drank themselves into hilarity and intoxication, and this dissipation lasted until Sunday night. Then they slept off their sprees and were ready to work Monday morning. During each period of excitement, from one to three or four of these revelers were murdered. Never having seen Indians before, I supposed them to represent the citizenship of Los Angeles, an amusing error for which I might be pardoned, when one reflects that nine out of forty-four of the founders of Los Angeles were Indians, and that according to an official census made the year before, Los Angeles County in 1852 had about 3,700 domesticated Indians, among a population of a little over 4,000 whites. And this mistake, as to the typical burger, together with my previous experiences, added to my amazement.
At last, with shouts and yells from the competing drivers, almost as deafening as the horn-blowing of a somewhat later date, and hailed apparently by every inhabitant and dog along the route, we arrived at the only real hotel in town, the Bella Union, where stages stopped and every city function took place. This hotel was a one-story adobe house enlarged in 1858 to two stories and located on Main Street above Commercial, and Dr. Obed Macy, who had bought it the previous spring from Winston and Hodges, was the proprietor. My friend Sam Meyer, now deceased, but for 50 years or more treasurer of 42, the oldest Masonic Lodge in Los Angeles, who had come here a few months in advance of me, awaited the arrival of the stage, and at once recognized me by my costume, which was anything but in harmony with Southern California fashions of that time. My brother, J.P. Newmark, not having seen me for several years, thought that our meeting ought to be private, and so requested Sam to show me to his store. I was immediately taken to my brother's place of business, where he received me with great affection. And there and then we renewed that sympathetic association which continued many years until his death in 1895. End of section 2